Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, October the 24th, 2023, but it doesn't really seem to matter on this show whether it's a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday. The song, the story is the same. It's about the end of the American dream, the crisis of the American dream. Uh, we've done so many shows on this. Um, a couple of days ago, we did one with Jeff Fuhrer, one of America's leading economists on uh, what a, he called, he didn't actually use this word that I interpreted as calling bullshit on the promise of the American dream. He's exposed that for most Americans, there no longer is an American dream. Alyssa Quart was on the show over the weekend talking about the broken bodies and broken homes, broken families and broken work in America today. Uh, we talked to a, a woman from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, late last week, Andrea Dobbins-Wagner, on what life is like for her, struggling with uh, a disability in terms of getting work. And last week, we also had the New York Times writer, Joe Nasira on the show talking about how COVID, in his view, has exposed and magnified and compounded the inequalities and un injustices of America. It's all brought together, actually. I've been mentioning this book for a while now, and it seems to bring a lot of these themes together. Uh, like Nasera, uh, David Leonhardt, well, actually, I think Nasera used to work for the New York Times. Uh, David Leonhardt is still uh, one of uh, the New York Times leading writers. He's their economics correspondent and columnist. And he has a, a really major new book out. Ours was The Shining Future, uh, the story of the American dream. He's joining us from New York. Um, it's a story, David, that hasn't or isn't, at, the, at least at the moment. It's, it doesn't have an American ending, does it? It doesn't have an American ending. And thank you for having me on, Andrew. Uh, no, American endings are supposed to be optimistic. Uh, they're, they're, you're supposed to feel good at the end. You, you go through some struggle and emerge victorious. And, and right now, um, we really are in a long period of stagnation for many people in this country. And I, I don't want to overly glamorize the past. The past had a lot of terrible problems. But really, um, the story that I tell is for much of the middle of the 20th century, um, most Americans could expect their lives to, to get better, even with the terrible racism we had in our society, even if the, with the inequality. In the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, incomes were rising for most people. Economic inequality was falling which is almost hard for people today to wrap their mind around. They assume, well, economic inequality only, always needs to rise, but it doesn't. Um, and yet that is what has happened um, uh, for the last 40 years or so. We've been living in a country with rising inequality and for huge numbers of people, stagnant living standards. And the statistics that, that captures it for me um, better and, and more tragically than any other is that in 1980, the United States had a normal life expectancy for a rich country. And today, the United States has the lowest life expectancy of any rich country, lower than Western Europe, than Japan, than Australia, than Canada, even lower than some countries that don't qualify as rich, like China, Chile, Slovenia. And, um, and I think that's a major reason people are so frustrated. It's the deaths of despair that Angus uh, Deaton, who's been on the show, won a Nobel Prize for. Your, your book starts on a very emotional note. It's not it's not a very personal book, but it begins very personally. I'm quoting from the introduction, David. My family's story is a particular one, but it also 
is a story that millions of families tell about their past. It is a story of progress, the story of the American dream. Perhaps you might tell us about your great-grandfather, Robert Leonhardt, and why that is the story of the American dream. Um, yeah, uh, I'd love to. So my great-grandfather, Robert Leonhardt, um, uh, was Austrian, uh, was an opera singer, could not get jobs in Europe because he was Jewish. Um, and uh, operas didn't want to hire Jews. We're now talking about the early 20th century. So he came to the United States and he turned out to be a very successful opera singer. He got hired by the Metropolitan Opera, um, only a few blocks from where I'm sitting now. And um, then during World War I, the Met fired him and all of the other Germans and Austrians who worked there um, because they said they were enemy aliens. They were citizens of the countries that the United States was at war with. Um, there was actually a story in the New York Times reporting the Met firing uh, these singers. And, and one of the, the sub had listed Leonhardt, baritone as one of the, the people who had been fired. Um, and it's a very sad story. He, he couldn't go back to Europe to be with his wife and his children, my, including my grandfather, because it was too dangerous to, to cross back. Uh, he stayed in New York for several years. He eventually got, um, got rehired in opera jobs, but he died here um, alone, away from his family, uh, presumably from cancer, a very young man, about 40 years old. Um, although you can still, you can still, if you search Spotify for Robert Leonhardt, some of his old recordings are on there, which is quite amazing. His son, my grandfather, um, managed to escape the Nazis and moved to the United States in 1940. Um, and uh, he then started a life here. Uh, he met a young woman from Brooklyn, my grandmother, Esther Messing, and they started a family. And the reason why I tell that story at the beginning of the book is because it is a story that includes a lot of tragedy. Renee, my grandfather, also died quite young. My dad barely knew him. But it's also a story in which when my family looks back on that, we obviously can feel a real um, pride about the fact that we have managed to establish better lives than our predecessors did because of the sacrifices that they made and the things that they did. And that kind of pride and gratitude um, has long been an American quality, right? That is in many ways the American dream. People talk about how proud they are that their family has the first college graduate or doctor or homeowner, and they think about how proud their, their relatives would have been. And what is so stark to me is that for so many American families, those narratives of progress are just really difficult to tell today because they're not true. In many communities, life isn't getting better. And when your lives aren't getting better and you worry about your children's future, it really does breed distrust and suspicion about institutions. And um, I think it's a major reason why our, our politics are, are, are so angry today. Your narrative, though, doesn't always fit into the, the regular conventions. It's not, I think, as sweet. It's You're not preaching to the converted. And in fact, and it's ironic, you, you begin the story with the the, the story, your personal story of your of your great grandfather, but it's also a narrative which addresses what you call hard truths. You had an interesting piece in the Atlantic on the hard truth about immigration. Uh, so you recognize we can't go back. Um, there may not be any Robert Leonhardt's in the future. David, is that fair? Tell or me what you mean. Well, you. 
tell me what why what what the hard truth about immigration is i mean you expect in and i wouldn't i don't mean to trivialize these your book but you expect in progressive critiques of what's happened in america from the new deal to reagan to trump you expect a defense of immigration but you don't in some ways defend it and you're addressing hard truths you're addressing the hard truth of immigration of labor organization so this is is a hard-hatted book it's not a sentimental uh, analysis of wow we as you know to the beginning we can't just go back to fdr and francis perkin and a philip randall yeah no i appreciate your saying that i mean i really one of the things i aspire to in this book uh, and in my writing for the new york times is is not to preach to the converted, but really to try to grapple with evidence, um, to think about what I might have been wrong about in the past, um, and to ask people to look at evidence that may not be completely convenient to their own worldview. And so I, I want to emphasize that I don't think immigration is anywhere near the top of the list of the reasons that people's living standards have stagnated. And, and, and we should talk about some of the other things that I do think mm. are the center, like, la- like the decline of labor unions, like the stagnation of educational attainment, like some of the trade policies. But let's set them aside for a minute. I want to take your question as it is, uh, which is about immigration. Yes, for a long time in this country, you had people who were comfortable separating two different questions about immigration, who should come and how many people should come. And so you had labor union figures, you had civil rights leaders. You just mentioned A. Philip Randolph. He was both of those things, a labor union leader and a civil rights leader. He uh, essentially planned the original March on Washington in 1941, which used that name, but he canceled because FDR folded and agreed to racially integrate wartime factories. And then then they revived the march and that name 22 years later as the 1963 March on Washington. And so A. Philip Randolph, by any measure, is a progressive hero in this country. He is also one of the people who warned about the effect that large, very high levels of immigration can have on the wages of lower income people. And I, one of the things that I worry about in this country is that we've ended up with a situation in which we basically have a conservative position on immigration that, let's be honest, often crosses into xenophobia and outright racism. It's immigration is bad. We shouldn't allow it. Let's keep America, America. And it often distorts facts about how well recent immigrants have done. In fact, recent immigrants from Asia and Latin America are ascending the ladder at roughly the same pace as Eastern Europeans were from the past decades. And then on the left, the the view on immigration tends to be more immigration is always better. We should let in more and more immigrants, and there is no economic cost to it. This is something you often hear on the left. Mm. There is no economic cost to it. I think that's simply wrong. I think it's wrong as a matter of logic. I think if you dig into the research that's been done on this, there's a real debate about how big the effect is, but most of the studies find it has a negative effect. And of course it has a negative effect, right? There there are laws of capitalism here. There are laws of supply and demand. If a company can choose whether to hire a thousand workers for one spot or four workers for one spot, um, the, the scenario where they can choose among a thousand, they're gonna pay lower wages. And so, I just think immigration is one of these issues in which there are trade-offs. 
It also affects the politics of countries that tend to move countries to the right and make social benefits and redistribution harder to pass. And I think the left has often done this mix of more immigration is always better. Anyone who suggests otherwise is being xenophobic when historically many, many progressives including Barack Obama, including Barbara Jordan, including Bill Clinton, if you count him as a progressive, including the, the union leaders of the 20th century, said, hey, we absolutely should not have a racist immigration system that admits people based on where they come from, but we also should have real limits on how many people we admit to this country. Every other country in the world does. We are speaking with David Leonhardt, his day job is at the New York Times. He's also written a very, very important new book. I mean, it brings so much stuff together. Ours was the signing shoot. Ours was the shining future. Ours being America and was, of course, being operative. It no longer is the shining future. David, you, of course, cover the rise of neoliberalism. Uh, you talk about the hard truth of, of immigration. But one of the other things that I took out of the book that I thought was very resonant was the split in the 60s amongst progressives, which going back to immigration suggests that many of the people who were most sympathetic to the idea of unlimited immigration have no experience of what it actually means to live in an America uh, of huge immigration. What happened in the 60s uh, within the left that in many ways is a, a major contributing factor to the, the crisis today in America? And a foreshadowing of today's politics in many ways. I mean, it was the beginning. When I went back and studied the rise of the new left and the decline of the old left and the split in the left, I kept having this feeling of, oh my goodness. I, I didn't dig into this to, to be able to understand what's going on on the left today, but there is no better way to understand what's going on on the left today than to go back to the early 60s and look at C. Wright Mills and, uh, and these whole debates. So I'll try to do it very quickly here. The details of it are just fascinating. I loved them. That's a, that, that for me was a very fun period to dive into. But, you know, in the 40s and 50s, the left um, really was in many ways a working class left. Now, of course, it had intellectual leadership, um, but it was a working class left. It was a left of labor unions. It was a left of the New Deal. And over the course, as the 60s dawned, a few different things happened. Um, one, the old left started to seem stale. The, the, the furthest left parts of it had made excuses for Stalin, which were discredited. Labor unions, which had really begun in their modern form in the 30s and 40s and put an emphasis on growth, by the 60s are just sort of trying to protect what they have. They care less about attracting new members and more about protecting the lifestyle of their, their current members. And the old left just feels stale to a lot of people. It's sexist in many ways. Um, and so I completely... And conservative, as you know, in the book, many of these union leaders, they may, some were corrupt but they'd become part of the establishment. They'd become part of the establishment. And so you have this new left emerge. C. Wright Mills is a crucial figure here. And they say, hey, you know what? This notion, this kind of Marxian notion that, that we're gonna fetishize the working class and, and that's where change is gonna come from, that's wrong. And actually the place where change needs to come from is university campuses. And, and C. Wright Mills makes this argument in, in a letter to the left. And 
it seems to start to be happening around the world. There are these protests in Japan. Um, there are these protests in Europe. There's an anti-nuclear movement. Most excitingly, in the United States, students are a core part of the civil rights movement, which really is taking off in 1962 with the Woolworth Counter sit-in. And, and so, and SDS forms. And so it starts, a lot of it is anti-nuclear activism, a fair amount of it is civil rights activism, and then it really becomes Vietnam. And this new left pushes for incredibly important changes in American life. Um, it, it calls out the Vietnam War for the failure that it was, uh, the unjust war and failure that it was. It is less tolerant of sexism and racism than, than the old left had been. But in forming this new left, the leaders really are relatively uninterested in appealing to people who are not intellectuals. They say, we are gonna base this around college campuses. That's where the energy of change is. And the problem with that idea is if you build a movement that overwhelmingly appeals to college graduates and alienates people who don't have a college degree, you have an arithmetic problem because the vast majority of the population in the early 1960s didn't have a four-year college degree. Today, still, most Americans don't have a four-year college degree. And so we saw this version of the left that was quite disdainful of different parts of the working class. They said that patriotism was actually reactionary while the working class were sending many of their kids to fight in Vietnam. Um, they said, we don't want to build a women's movement that is open to people who have different views on reproductive rights, because many working class women were more conservative about it. Um, they were not welcoming to the welfare rights movement, which was made up overwhelmingly of African American women. It was very much a more elite movement. And so even as the new left, I think, was trying to do some very good and important things, it alienated huge numbers of working class people. And you basically get the rise of the Democratic Party as being part of what Thomas Piketty, the economist, has called the Brahmin left that you also see in Europe, in which left-wing parties are increasingly the parties of relatively well-off college graduates, professionals, and the working class has, dri has drifted more toward right-wing parties. And it's not just the white working class. In recent years, we've also seen the Latino working class and the Asian American working class, and a few percentage points of the black working class move away from the Democratic Party. More hard truths from David Leonhardt, the author of Ours Was the Shining Future. I want to thank our sponsor, um, Liberty's Quarterly, which also tells in its own way hard truths, a, a wonderfully new quarterly journal of culture and politics. We're going to run a short ad for Liberty's, and then we'll be back with uh, David to talk more about how we're going to reestablish or reclaim or reinvent the American dream. It's a fascinating conversation. Don't go away, anyone. We'll be back in about 33 and a half seconds. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with David Leonhardt of the New York Times, author of a major new book, Ours Was the Shining Future. Um, David, you mentioned before the break, you're talking about the split between the new and the old left. You mentioned C. Wright Mills, this 
motorcycling, womanizing, intellectual. I think he was originally from Texas. Um, uh, he's, if not the bad model, perhaps probably the model that you, we don't want to emulate. On the other hand, um, there was uh, Robert Kennedy, RFK, who you really present as the voice of a progressive populism, which lost in the Democratic Party. Is that fair? Yes. Is RFK, um, is he, is it, is it a rather, I don't know, a sad tale? I mean, obviously his tale was rather sad, but more broadly. Yeah, it is. And look, I don't, RFK in part because he was murdered has become a hero to many people. And I don't want to suggest a sort of um, uh, one of these, you know, butterfly effect situations in which if only RFK had lived, we'd be in a very different country. It's possible he wouldn't have even won the presidency that year if he had lived. But I still think he's an important model because today RFK is remembered as um, as a liberal hero, which I think he deserves to be remembered as. I also think he is a more nuanced and strategic, uh, I might even use the word ruthless. He was teased as being ruthless and he came to adopt that l label. He made fun of it. He made fun of people who called him ruthless on the campaign trail. And, and this is what I mean by that. In the 1968 race, the Republicans tried to make hay of the rise in crime during the 1960s, which was real, by calling for law and order. And Eugene McCarthy, who was really the candidate of the, of the new left, the more educated new left, the college students, refused to use the phrase law and order because he thought it was inappropriate how Republicans were using it. He thought they were race baiting it by using law and order, and they were. But RFK had a very different view of, of crime and also of Vietnam. He said, we can't avoid law and order as an issue. If we refuse to talk about law and order, if we say, oh, just ignore all that, let's talk about economic issues, which is of course what many Democrats try to do today. They say, let's not talk about those cultural issues, these social issues. Um, let's just talk about economics. RFK said, if we do that, we will have lost the conversation immediately because huge numbers of Americans are concerned about crime. We have to talk about it. And so RFK both was the candidate who called for substantial redistribution of income, who really was populist, and who also talked about law and order. He said, look, I used to be the attorney general of the United States. I know how to deal with this crime problem. And he would say both. Part of the problem is poverty and racism in this country, and we need to address it. And part of the problem is that we don't have a good enough approach to law and order. And RFK managed to be both the candidate of law and order from a progressive standpoint, and he managed to be the most popular politician in Black America. And I think it's because he treated working class people, black and white, respectfully. He listened to their views. He didn't tell them, no, 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 you silly people, don't pay attention to those other issues. Let's just talk about tax rates and, and, and benefit programs. He said, I take you seriously when you say you are uncomfortable with the war in Vietnam, but you're also uncomfortable with the idea of us cutting and running. I take you seriously when you say you're worried about crime. And so while today he's remembered as this liberal hero, and I actually think he does deserve to be remembered as a liberal hero. In the moment during the campaign, you had journalists, including for my own employer, the New York Times, I didn't work there back then, I wasn't alive, say, what is this conservative Bobby Kennedy? And I think the answer was, 
he was taking people's views seriously and he was trying to build a populism that didn't just change the subject when it was a little bit uncomfortable for Democrats. He treated people with respect. He's certainly a romantic figure. Uh, and because he was assassinated, as you know, it's, it's impossible to know how he would have turned out. But I wonder, David, thinking out loud, listening to what you're saying, aren't you really describing Bill Clinton, that he was uh, hard-headed, hard-hatted, that he had his sister-soldier moment, uh, but he knew how to talk to black Americans before uh, Barack Obama, he was the black president. So so, so why, why would RFK have worked out given what happened with Clinton? And maybe you have a different interpretation of Clinton. Uh, we, we've done some shows on Clinton, particularly from the left, who, who see he, sees him as a massive sellout and as a failure. So I think that I think there are two points I want to make there. Every Democratic president who's managed to win, Bill, in in, in recent decades, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, has actually had a verge had had some of this RFK, right? Which is they have all figured out ways to appeal to voters who are more socially and culturally moderate. Right. I mean, you and I were talking about immigration before the way Barack Obama talked about immigration and the importance of border security. No Democrat today would be as moderate on the issue as Barack Obama was. He he championed immigrants. He said we need a pathway to legalization. And he said, and we need border security. And he talked about he talked in his 2008 convention speech about the economic impact that employers being able to hire undocumented immigrants, although Barack Obama used the phrase illegal immigrants, he talked about the economic effect that has. So I think all of the Democrats who've actually managed to win have understood that you can't win an election in this country by appealing to a version of the Democratic Party that looks more like a university campus uh, or a liberal political magazine than it looks like working class voters. Joe Biden's a great example, right? How did he win? Because the moderate working class voters of South Carolina, overwhelmingly black, preferred him to to the alternatives. But you're asking a good question. So wait a second, if this was Bill Clinton's model, why didn't Clinton have a more successful presidency in terms of reversing some of these trends? That's a complicated answer. Bill Clinton did accomplish some really important things. But Bill Clinton also embraced what is often called this neoliberal consensus, in which he said, look, trade is going to lift It's going to be a rising tide that lifts all boats, and we are going to really expand trade with China, and that's going to benefit Americans. I think with the benefit of hindsight, it is very hard to argue that the promises that Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush made about trade with China have come true. I do not think it's benefited American workers for the most part. I think it has been much more damaging than that. And I think that's partly why you see the party reassessing um, what once was its neoliberal consensus on trade. One of the the, the great strengths, I thought, um, David, in, in your book, you're a, an economics writer, journalist at the New York Times, was the central role you 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 make of unions and the deunionization of America. Again, you're not the first person to make this, but if there is a central thesis in the book, it may be this, that the reason why there's so much profound inequality in America, this enormous division, this chasm between the wealthy, you mentioned Piketty and the poor, is because unions no longer have a place at the table. Is that fair if there is 
one, I mean, there are a number of theses, and we're going to come to some others later in the conversation. But unions seem to be central, and that's why uh, both Perkins, uh, who, of course, uh, was uh, a workers' right advocate, the first uh, under FDR, the uh, Secretary of Labor, and uh, A. Philip Randolph, one of America's great unionists in the, in the 20th century, are such central figures in your narrative. Yes, I think that's fair. Uh, and I would broaden it only slightly to say, I think that grassroots political movements, movements that get members, I'm not talking about people just online commenting on things, I mean, actual members who do things like go to meetings and and participate in, in shaping a group's mission and are willing to show up and lobby local government or, or lobby federal government. Uh, I think grassroots political organizations in this country actually have a glorious history of success. They're not guaranteed to succeed. They often experience years or decades of failure before they succeed. But think about what grassroots movements in this country have changed. The, the recent same-sex marriage movement is a glorious success of grassroots politics. The disability rights movements in the 70s, the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement, these are all glorious examples of success. And it's not limited to the political left either. Um, people may loathe the results of the anti-abortion movement. I completely understand that. But after Roe v. Wade in 1973, conservatives who are opposed to abortion, they didn't say the system is rigged. They said, let's start organizing. And they basically took over the Republican Party and they won elections in red states. And they eventually did so well that they elected enough presidents who got enough Supreme Court justices appointed uh, to overturn the law. And so these are all examples of grassroots politics succeeding at their goals. And labor unions were not only fantastically successful at doing that from the 1930s through roughly the 1960s or 70s, but they are the central political organizing tool that is available for workers, workers of varying political views on other things, but unions are the thing that put workers on a more equal footing with their employers, and they then become an organizing device for progressive economic politics. I, I sometimes think about this, which is you imagine a worker in 1968 who's maybe culturally conservative, maybe even a little bit bigoted, and that person is tempted to vote for George Wallace. And what is, what is the organization that persuades him, hey, you know what, George Wallace is anti-union. Whatever you think of George Wallace, he's going to be bad for you. He's anti-worker. And in fact, the AFL-CIO ran a huge campaign against Wallace and shifted a lot of votes from Wallace toward Hubert Humphrey at the end. Now, Humphrey was a pretty flawed candidate and he didn't win, but that's an example of what happens. And now let's think about what's happening. Are those workers hearing from their unions about, about why they should vote on economic matters? No, they're hearing from Fox News. They're hearing from their evangelical churches um, because unions are just so weak. And so I, it's not just unions. It's basically political organizations. But there is no political organization that is stronger or has the potential to be stronger for working class people than labor unions. I was I read your book uh, in parallel with rereading Rick Perlstein's various studies of Reaganland and Nixonland. From your analysis, I think Reagan may be a more significant figure than, than Nixon. There seems to be two narratives about what's happened in America. One, you blame everything on Richard Nixon, the other on Ronald Reagan. Maybe that's too simplistic. And of course, you can't blame everything on any single person. But if we're to look back historically in political terms, David, is the Reagan period more important in some ways than the Nixon period? Yes. 
Yes, I think it is. I mean, look, when you look at Richard Nixon, Richard Nixon um, really accepted the post-war economic consensus in, in, in many ways, not in all ways. I understand there's some ways in which he, he moved on from it. But really, he didn't try to crush labor unions. He didn't try to reduce really high marginal tax rates. Um, I quote someone in the book saying, a conservative, saying no one expanded the federal government um, as much since FDR as Richard Nixon, right? He added all these agencies. Sometimes they were Congress's ideas and um, and he made them a little bit less far reaching, but he didn't veto them. He accepted them. Nixon really did accept the kind of post-war mixed economy consensus. And then you have Reagan come in um, and very clearly says, we're rewriting the rules. Um, we are going to get rid of unions. Um, we are going to really cut tax rates. Uh, we are going to pull way back in regulation. We are going to allow companies to get much bigger than they were before, putting into practice the ideas of Robert Bork, um, who would become notorious for other reasons, but really is a central economic thinker of the conservative movement in the 20th century. And that's why I make him a big figure in the book. I think people don't understand <clears throat> what his real legacy is. And so no, Reagan doesn't get rid of Medicare and he doesn't get rid of Social Security. And he doesn't eliminate the education department, but he fundamentally changes the rules around taxes and regulation uh, and under regulation that includes antitrust and labor unions. And he says this is going to lead to a new era of prosperity for all Americans, this more laissez-faire version of capitalism. And I would just say, let's look at the record and, and hold Reagan to his own standard. Did his changes lead to a new era of prosperity for most Americans? As you know, Robert Bork is another of the central figures in the narrative. Again, you're not the first person or the last person to write about Bork. Bork seems to fetishize the Constitution. And when it comes to political change in America, uh, we did a show with Daniel Ziblatt. I'm sure you're familiar with his new book about uh, how constitutional reform needs to happen to strengthen America's, uh, to, to strengthen democracy and again, and indeed equality. And in fact, in Ziblatt's new book, there's a lot of similarities with yours. Uh, you end on a, on a more positive note, suggesting that America needs profound constitutional reform. Explain what you mean and how this ties into the, the narratives in your book. So it's related to the conversation we were just having a minute ago about how successful I think grassroots political movements have been in this country. I understand why so many people are cynical. There's so much reason to be cynical. All the trends we've been talking about in this country, in income inequality, life expectancy. Um, and there's a genuine threat of a kind of rising authoritarian movement uh, in the United States. So I I completely understand why people are anxious and are worried and are even sometimes cynical. The thing that I would say is, well, what are the potential solutions to these problems? And I think the only potential solutions at our disposal are the mechanisms of small d democratic politics. Uh, and I think we should take some solace in the fact that they really have worked. I just gave you the list, right? The, the, the marriage equality movement, um, uh, the labor unions of, of the 1930s and 40s, the civil rights movement. The, these were democratic movements. These were people who didn't give up on the process as hopelessly rigged. They figured out how to change the country using our laws and our democratic system. And so sometimes that actually means changing the rules themselves. And for most of our history, it hasn't been that unusual to amend the constitution every few decades. We haven't done it in a very long time. For most of our history, it's men adding a new state or two every few decades. And so 
I do think important things are to make Puerto Rico and Washington DC states, they're states with a lot of American citizens, overwhelmingly not white, who somehow don't have representation in Congress, um, which is very hard to, to defend. Um, uh, so I do think there are some constitutional changes that would, would make the country better. Mostly though, I think we need to change our policies. I mean, you and I've talked a bunch about labor unions. If you look back, LBJ accomplished nearly all of his major domestic priorities, except labor law reform, except making it easier to join unions. He just didn't quite get above the line of what he was really going to put his personal capital behind and use the famous LBJ treatment to pass. And so it didn't pass. Jimmy Carter said he was for labor law reform, but instead he prioritized getting a treaty with Panama. Barack Obama said he was with labor law, for labor law reform, but it didn't yet become more important than healthcare reform and some of the other bills that Obama passed. Joe Biden said that he's for labor law reform, and I think genuinely is, as some of the earlier Democrats were, but Congress wasn't interested. And so to me, we actually shouldn't be cynical about labor unions as ha having the potential to transform society. The Democratic Party hasn't really tried to use federal policy to make it easier to join unions. If they did, I think it could have a big effect. And so I'm not predicting everything's going to turn out well for this country or our economy. I'm just saying there are tools at our disposal that we have not used that could have a meaningful difference on the American economy and on our politics. Final question, David. I know you've got to run. Something's changed, though, in the world over the last 50 years, which is America's place in it or the American economy's place in it, the rise of China. Is it possible that there have been so many structural changes, globalization, industrialization, post-industrialization, the technological revolution, that the future is something profoundly foreign that we simply can't imagine what is around the corner? It's certainly possible. Um, and I, there is no world in which the United States can go back to being as dominant in a global way as it was in the 1950s, uh, an era when much of Europe and Japan were still recovering from the war, when the Southern Hemisphere was, was still emerging from colonialism, when much of the world was, was under communism and didn't have particularly competitive economies. There's no way we're going back to that world. The United States will be a smaller share of the global economy in the future than it was in, in the past. But I really think we shouldn't assume uh, that, that we're destined uh, to live in an economy that is as poor for most Americans as this economy has been. It, it really is possible for us to put in policies that could make a major difference. And actually, there are some parts of the global economy that should make that easier rather than harder. You and I have been talking a fair amount about labor unions. They're only one part of the story. But the switch to a service economy actually has the potential to make labor organizing easier in some ways. If I operate a factory and my workers try to unionize and I want to get out of there, I can move my factory to Alabama or to Latin America or to Asia and potentially have a non-union workforce. But if I operate a hospital or a retail distribution center for goods sold on the internet, or uh, anything else like that. These are all growing parts of the American economy. You can't just pick that up and move it when your workers threaten to unionize. It is inherently a local business. And so yes, some parts of our economic changes make it harder 
to reestablish an economy that delivers prosperity for all. But other things actually make it easier than it would have been in the 1970s and 80s.